Cosmic Canvas Studio presents What Lies Between Sleep. Diallo. You know, I looked up the word to try and figure out if there were any leads. I found two things. First, it's Italian for yellow, pronounced giallo. Excuse the accent. Second, it's a genre of horror, often noted for its goriness. Nothing speaks of some forbidden place between dreams. Sorry, if you're just joining us, this is episode 3 of Dreamlights, a chronicle where I, Bernard Sanderson, investigate the madness that lies between the sleeping and the waking world. Welcome back, friends, colleagues, enemies. I've got a few letters, or... Emails, really, inquiring as to these other books. It's true. Last episode I mentioned that I had leads to multiple books, but the Dexter Peters one is the one that I could actually get access to. The other two, yes, two, I can't get my hands on yet. Mainly because they aren't located in the US of A, but rather in foreign countries. Both of which have committed the egregious crime of costing a fortune to visit. I'll talk about them later. But since the last time we talked, or really since I broadcasted, or really just clicked the upload button, I was talking and reading about Dexter Peters, more specifically, Dr. Franklin and his relationship with the ill-fated man. Unfortunately, the book itself didn't have as much information as I had been hoping. Most of the coverage on Dexter was extremely clinical in nature. The few bits I could extract about Giallo or the supernatural were stretched across four chapters. The rest of the book, well, let's just say there was a reason it wasn't picked up by a publisher. Doc Frank liked to talk a lot about his own charity work, rambling endlessly about his incredible deeds overseas, and discussing all the things that he saw that was wrong with the system. The details about Dexter were scant. The boy was alive for a few months, talking and screaming about Giallo, and then one day, he was dead. From the record, there was no indication of this coming. No warnings. Just sudden death. It wasn't until the final chapter of the book, where Frank was discussing his greatest regrets, that I was able to find a clue that would lead me somewhere else. I'll give his final monologue here. Abridged, of course. <clears throat> of all the cases I've worked, of all the things I've dealt with, the only true regret that I have is the terrible fate of Dexter Peters. He was bright and full of life, albeit struggling with a terrible neurosis. I know now that he was murdered. His mental health was only partially to blame for his lack of functionality. The delayed reaction times, the fatigue, the memory loss, all come from a lack of sleep. A lack that could be chemically induced by the proper arrangement of drugs. I did my due diligence and in the end discovered that it was indeed Nurse Jacqueline Frost who had been slipping him amphetamines meant to keep him awake. Was she an angel of mercy, seeking to prevent him from dreaming, or a cruel and calculated woman who sought only to experiment on those who suffered from night terrors? I do not know. All I know is that she had been supplying him with the drugs he so desperately begged me for, all the way up until his death. But the greatest mystery will be how he died. There were no signs of any external trauma. I know for a fact that her medication regimen did not kill him. I will never forget finding him, with his own two hands clasping at his throat, as if he were being strangled. I suspect greatly that it was Miss Jacqueline who killed him. But alas, the family of Dexter and the police refused to investigate. I just wish I knew why she did it. But then again, I'm not a criminal psychiatrist, am I? Chilling stuff. But hey, I was in Louisiana at the time, and I had another week of vacation, so why not look this woman up? 
At first, I thought Jacqueline was a pseudonym, but without an editor, Dr. Franklin didn't bother to conceal her name. This was a rather unprofessional thing to do, but something tells me that this doctor was done with practicing medicine and was far more interested in getting in the limelight. Fortunately, his efforts to drag this woman through the muck didn't seem to work. I found her in the phone book. She was fairly old and rather receptive to a nice young man wanting to know about her nursing days. She agreed to be interviewed, but didn't want anything recorded, so I had to take notes on pen and paper like a barbarian. This is basically a written interview where I sat and talked with Jacqueline Frost. I've done my best to record her answers verbatim, but I'm an amateur at this, so cut me some slack. She insisted that I call her Jackie, and we met at a nursing home that she likes to volunteer at. She's of the age where she herself could be at this nursing home, but she insists that she's perfectly healthy at home. Using the word home as a perfect segue, I inquired upon her work at the home. This question took a bit of the brightness out of her face, but she was willing to answer it honestly. Twenty years ago, I worked for that asylum. Saw a lot of tragic things. Nowadays, they say that everything we did was wrong. Cruel. Unethical. But what can I say? We thought we were helping. Insanity back then was so misunderstood. We all wanted to help the best we could. Well, not all of us. Some sanitariums realized that putting the mentally ill to work was handy. The good way to make money. The home wasn't like that. They were adventurous. Courageous. What you would call cruel, they would call restorative. I asked if she regretted what she did. I regret everything about my career as a nurse there. There was a time when they thought drilling a hole in a head was good medicine. Any medical professional worth their salt would regret that procedure if they learned the truth. That's the nature of progress, isn't it? You start with a bad idea, and then eventually someone realizes it was a bad one, and replaces it with a good one. But if you never had the bad one, well, then maybe that good idea never would have come around. At least, that's how we justified what we did in the early medical field. I can appreciate that sentiment. I then asked her the pivotal question about Dexter. She recognized the name instantly, and for a moment I thought she was going to end the interview. Everything about her body language indicated that she'd be happier if she never heard the name again. I pressed a little to get the truth about the amphetamines. And she said, This is just between you and me, right? I once again tried to explain to her that this was a podcast. She barely understood what I meant, even when I tried to explain how iTunes worked to her. So it's not for legal purposes? Oh, what do I care? I'll be dead soon. Yes, I was slipping the boy uppers. His nightmares were getting the worst of him. Or at least, what we thought were nightmares. They weren't simply bad dreams. A bad dream doesn't leave marks on your wrists. I saw the boy go to bed one night, restrained. And the next morning, as I went to rouse him, discovered deep, deep gashes, like diamonds down his wrists. As if he had been cut by something. But the gashes were faded, as if a long period of time had passed. The night before, when we strapped him in, his arms were perfectly smooth. I asked her what this all meant. I don't know. Just that, whatever he was suffering from, I didn't think it was in his head. I felt bad for the boy and gave him drugs to keep him awake. But he got worse. Then the new doctor came in and started patronizing Dexter, acting as if it were all some kind of sickness, some mental illness. I then inquired on the possibility of this simply being the product of madness. I saw the scars. 
He was bound up tight the entire evening. Sure, the bindings leave a few marks, but diamond burns? Burns that look to be faded by a century? I'm sorry, but no madness will do that to a man. And the worst part was how lucid he was when the panic wore off. He spoke like a normal person. Why, you'd think he was a regular man off the street. Some of the new orderlies even mistook him for somehow ending up in the home on accident. I then asked her about the supernatural, hoping against hope for some insight into all of this. I'm a God-fearing woman, sir, and I don't... I don't know? I can't speak for what lies beyond. I just know, just that we mortals should not interfere with matters that don't concern this world. Perhaps the poor boy thought himself smarter, and made a deal with the devil. I don't know. All I know is that one day, the devil came to collect his due, took the boy's soul, and left the body behind. I asked her about the murder allegations. Murder? She laughed. Young man, why would anyone want him murdered? His parents had abandoned him emotionally, but the money kept coming in. He didn't deal with any other patients, and the only other person he talked to was Dr. Franklin. In asylum terms, he was a goldmine. Young, healthy, and with a family that was all too happy to keep sending checks each month. I gave him pills because I thought it would help. But I didn't kill him. No one here did. At this point, I could tell she was getting tired with the interview and frustrated at someone bringing up these questions, so I just asked her one last question before wrapping up. I asked her if she had ever heard the name Giallo. Many times, he called the place Giallo. Or really, they told him it was Giallo. I mean, the nightmares told him he was in a place called Giallo. Whew, and that was that. The rest of the interview devolved into her opinions on Nixon, and then a long, exhausting discussion of all 19 of her grandchildren. But you heard it here, folks. Giallo is real. The names I heard whispered are the same that Dexter was screaming in his sleep. This is an independent confirmation. I don't know if I should be comforted or terrified. And we're back. So, that interview should count as confirmation of a few things. First and foremost, Dexter wasn't murdered by any living thing. Well, at least not living on this side of sleep. Second, he was being pulled into Giallo. And third, Louisiana is one overgrown swamp and I'm happy to report that I got everything I needed and I am never going back. Though the Dexter case is closed for now. I found as much as I could about the subject, but that's about it. No other leads. Then again, I don't know what else I would find, really. I mean, just think about it. Most folks just thought he was nuts. Only the nurse saw what was happening, and boy was she reluctant to put a label on it. So, we've made some progress. But it's time to move on in our investigation. I say our, because I like to include you, the listener, on this journey and adventure. Books 2 and 3. So, like I said in the last episode, I spent a great deal of time studying nightmares in the hopes of finding a lead. One source I came across was reference to a book written in French called Reves et Terreur. Terreur? Terreur. Pardon my French. It translates to dream and terror. At least, that's what Google Translate told me. Dreams and Terror was written in the 18th century by a French doctor named Pierre Bouchard. Mr. Bouchard was an eccentric whose main contribution to the medical field was to suggest that maybe we shouldn't drill holes in people's heads to cure them. Seriously, I looked it up. He was famous for that. Anyway, 
Pierre Bouchard doesn't have that big of a Wikipedia entry, and I wasn't able to find much, but thanks to the references from countless hours of reading science journals, I was able to determine that Dreams and Terror was written primarily as a study of why people have nightmares. A single story was cited about how Pierre himself had a reoccurring dream about a woman who visited his window each night and bid him to enter so she could, get this, give the man a piece of paper. Him, being a man of the Enlightenment and not a complete dumbass, refused her each time until eventually she stopped visiting. So I figure, hey, that's similar to my experience. Perhaps he knows something I didn't. Perhaps he knew why to refuse her entry. The problem is the book is definitely out of print. And since I don't speak French and don't have the money to hire a translator, I'm out of luck with my library searching. I'm putting a pin in that selection for now. If any of you out there are fluent in French and want to help, you know how to email me. Also, I, I can't pay you, so you know, you gotta do it for the, uh, do it for the love. And the third and final book isn't located in North America either. It was cited as the definitive English book on nightmares, called, uh, oh, what was it? <sighs> Some schlocky title. Ah, here it is. What Lies Between Sleep, A Guide to Survival. Now tell me that is not a curious title. It has everything that indicates it's clearly in my wheelhouse. Except for, well, two things, really. The first is that it's classified as fiction. The references I read never treated it as anything more than a novelty. Check this quote out. Of course, some people believe that dreams are part of the supernatural. Arthur Cunningham, a well-known speculator from the 1700s, wrote an occult treatise on the subject, speaking about how to defend from nightmares. He spoke about spirits and other such entities as being the reason men and women wake up screaming in the dead of night. So, yeah, when you're reading a science book and it mentions anything about the supernatural, it's usually followed by 19 paragraphs explaining why it wasn't actually ghosts or whatever. So that was a dead end for me in terms of search. I tried to look it up, didn't find it. There is one copy listed in the Oxford Library, and shocking as this may seem, the librarian certainly didn't want to read it to me over the phone. So, that's it, I suppose. Tickets to the UK are pretty damn high, and I don't even have a passport, so consider that book closed, too. And besides, all I'd be going after is a gamble anyway. The phrase, between sleep, is what caught my attention, though. We don't refer to nightmares as between sleep. And the fact that the book poses itself as a survival guide? That points towards what I experienced. But there is a pretty high chance that if I actually get to the UK and get my hands on this book, it'll just turn out to be a poorly written fiction. Then I'm out of grand, and for what? Nothing. I'd rather take my chances hiring a French translator to help me find the other book. So, that's it for today. Sorry if everything seems to have slowed down a bit. Truth be told, I thought I'd have more content, but unless I come into some real money soon, I won't be able to make any of those trips to Europe. Don't give up heart, friends. I'll figure it out sooner or later. And besides, there are plenty more books about nightmares for me to read. Normally, I'd do our email section next, but I instituted a strict no-sanity-or-fiction discussion policy, and well, that's the only topic the emails to me have covered. People begging me to take my meds, or people saying how clever I am for trying to do a Blair Witch thing. So please, please email me about something else. Anything else. This is Bernard Sanderson saying, sleep well, and if you can't sleep, beg it to save you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. 
If you want to have one of your emails read by me on air, hop on Patreon and subscribe. Your support can help this podcast continue to grow and thrive. Check the show notes or head on over to www.whatliesbetweensleep.com for more info. And I'll see you next week.